Well, we're really excited to be partnering with you guys. You know, one of the things is our, our name, Gospel Peace Church. We, we want to keep a close connection with Gospel Grace Church and Gospel Hope Church. We want to be a part of this family of churches and really be considered a part of that family. And so that's why we wanted to keep that kind of name. We, it wasn't forced upon us. We could do whatever we wanted, it seemed like, but we really, we really wanted to keep that close connection and calling us Gospel Peace Church. And you think, think about that. What an amazing message. A message of grace, a message of hope, and a message of peace. Praise the Lord that we get to be a part of that mission, God's mission to reach nations with the gospel and proclaim this gospel of peace. Right? Our, our feet should be um, laced up with the gospel of peace. Ephesians 6 says, right? Did you know that Jesus made peace by the blood of the cross? Colossians 1. See that? There's, there's a war that happened at the cross. A bloody cross. And what comes from that war? Peace. We, we want to proclaim this message of peace to the people of Logan and there is a significant need there in, in Logan, and we'll be talking more about that in the next hour. Um, but uh, one really sad, devastating thing. Two weeks ago, I found out that already since high school graduation, in a high school of about 1,500 students, so maybe a little over 300 graduates this year in, at Logan High, since graduation, five students have committed suicide. Do they know the gospel of peace? Do they know the gospel that can bring rest? Do they know the gospel that can bring reconciliation? We can have peace with God? Romans 5. So what a privilege to be proclaimers of this gospel. Um, and the songs that we've sung this morning pair so well with what we're going to be talking about this morning in Ecclesiastes. So if you have a Bible... Would you please open up to Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we'll get into a little bit of chapter 2, and hopefully set you up to read the rest of Ecclesiastes. We sang songs about God being for us this morning. We sang songs that in Christ alone, my hope is found. But maybe you came this morning thinking, yes, I know that's true. But when I look around, it doesn't always seem that way. And I think the message of Ecclesiastes is going to help us with this. As we kind of pair these two ideas of difficulty happening, but there is a God and He is for us. Remember the, the things that were important to you when you were a kid? Do you remember? When you were a kid, the things that were important to you and now you, just, you feel like they just seem kind of meaningless to you? What Lego set should I buy? Remember those days? Remember the days of like collecting Atlanta Braves baseball cards? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, yeah. David Justice. Okay. Um, remember when it was important who was sitting in the front seat of the minivan? Remember that? Maybe you guys have experienced that even this morning when, no, I called shotgun first, but you weren't outside yet. But I, my mom always spoke truth like this. Um, you know we're all going to the same place, right? Like, yeah, that's a good point. Okay. 
Remember when the iPhone 4 came out? Was that a thing? I don't even remember. But remember when the iPhone 4, 4 came out, how important that was? Remember that? Remember that high school basketball game that, that the world was revolving around? Remember that? Remember those days? Now they just seem meaningless, right? We don't remember the scores. We don't remember that Lego set. We don't remember the cool air that came out of the front seat of the minivan very well. This is the kind of thing that's happening in Ecclesiastes. An older, mature man looking back on life thinking, what was that all about? That seemed kind of pointless. It seemed meaningless. He says, why did I do what I did? What in the world was going on? Why did I even try? So that's what this book is doing. Now, let me just give you a couple of introductory notes. And the reason I'm taking the time to do this is because I want to help us read the book better. There's some keys to helping us read this book better. It's like reading the introduction of a, of a book, right? Don't skip the introduction. I know you want to get to chapter one and just jump right into it, but the introduction is actually really important. So allow me just a couple minutes to introduce the book to you. Ecclesiastes is the name of the book. Does anybody, <laughs> what in the world does that mean? Is that someone's name? Like, what is going on? Well, Ecclesiastes is a transliteration of the Greek, which if you don't know about your Old Testament, it was written in Hebrew originally. And so Ecclesiastes is, it's, it doesn't sound like a Greek word to you that you might know. Ecclesia, Greek word, ecclesia. Ecclesia means what? Church, the assembly. Ecclesiastes is the one who assembles. The preacher, the teacher. You might even have that in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes. You see that? Your translation might say the preacher, or it might say the teacher, or the assembler, the one who gathers. This is the one for whom the people are gathered for. So this book is about what the preacher, the teacher, has to say. The author here, the preacher, it might be Solomon. Most scholars think it's probably not Solomon for some reason, for a few reasons, but we don't have to get into that. Um, Solomon doesn't, make, doesn't mention his name like he does in other books that he writes, and there's some inconsistencies that uh, it's hard for me to think that the author is Solomon, but they're not huge inconsistencies, so if you think the author is Solomon, it's totally fine, it's great. I actually don't think it's a big deal. Um, but the author is at least trying to adopt a Solomonic persona. He's at least trying to draw our minds to Solomon. And that, that's the way he's going to start. Look at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Our minds go there, don't they? So they, the author is at least wants us to have Solomon in mind as we read, especially in the first three chapters of this book then the Solomonic persona is not quite as strong the rest of the way. Now, this, the, as for the structure, there's title, the author, and here a little bit about the structure. And it's, it's really interesting to me, this structure that is set up in Ecclesiastes, and I think this piece will really help us read well. There's, there's a distinct introduction, and there's a distinct conclusion. It's so distinct that we say there's a frame narrator. Understand? The frame narrator he frames the book, introduces the teacher, and then this middle part is the teacher teaching, and the last part, the frame narrator, 
concludes. He gives the conclusion of the matter. So what's cool with Ecclesiastes is that you have a lot of topics discussed, a lot of observations about what life is like in the world. Spoiler alert, it's pretty messed up. And there's a lot of seeming discrepancies in the world, like what is going on? A lot of meaninglessness, it seems. A lot of questions that are left unanswered. And then at the end, the framed error steps in, steps in and gives the conclusion of the matter. He settles the unanswerable questions. He sets everything at rest. So today we're going to look at the introduction and just barely get into the first part of the teacher's teaching together. So let's look at chapter 1 together. Listen as I read. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanities. Vanity. Um, Pause real quick. What do you think the point is? Verse number three, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes. The earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and round goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. All right, well, that's pretty exciting news. It's difficult, right? He starts out saying everything is vanity. Vanity of vanities. Then he repeats, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. This word is used 73 times in the Old Testament. It's used 38 times in Ecclesiastes, these 12 chapters. It's important. The frame narrator introduces that concept, and at the end, he says the exact same thing in chapter 12, chapter 12 verse 8. And repetition in Hebrew is extremely important. They're not wasting space. You don't waste space when you're writing on a rock. You, know? you don't waste space when you're writing on a cowhide. You know what I'm saying? So when he repeats things like this, he's trying to draw our attention to it. So vanity of vanities. Think like holy of holies, king of all kings, vanity of all vanities. Stands as bookends. It's an oversimplified summary at the beginning and an oversimplified summary of what happened at the end. He says at the end, see, I told you, everything is vanity. So, what does vanity mean? We should probably have a good definition of what vanity means when we go into this text, right? So, where do you go when you want to look up something, what something means? Merriam-Webster. Vanity is a bathroom cabinet containing a sink and usually having a countertop. Let's read that again. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, the top choice in vanity in in Merriam-Webster is an inflated pride in one's self or one's appearance. 
Second, this is probably where it's getting at here in this text, is something that is vain, empty, or valueless. Vanity is just not a word we use too much today. So I'm not crazy about that translation. What other translation? Your translation might have something different, right? A lot, of, a lot of translations say meaninglessness. And I think that's getting at the point. Another, other translations might say futile. Literally, the word means breath or vapor. It's often used metaphorically, so literal, literal translations is going to give us a picture, but what's he getting at? What's, what's the context of what he's saying if something is vapor? Well, in some ways, it's time-related. It's just passing. It's worthless or trivial. It seems nonsensical sometimes, incomprehensible, illogical, irrational, doesn't make sense. In fact, one author, who I like a lot, uses this one, absurd. This one's my favorite. I think it fits the most usages as you get into the book. So when contradictions in life can't be explained and difficulties happen, the author calls them absurd, right? Here's an absurdity. The wicked prosper. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. What's up with that? Or, this guy does all the work, and that guy gets the goods. What? Actually, he finds all things under the sun to be meaningless or absurd. Really? All things under the sun? Meaningless? Absurd? Everything? Yes, says the teacher. Just look around you. So point number one. We're not nearly as important as we thought we were. His thesis here in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. What's the profit? Under the sun. This is going to be a very important phrase that we'll see over and over. It's used, it's used 29 times in the Old Testament. In Ecclesiastes, it's used 29 times. Every usage in the Old Testament is here. It's an important phrase. And I think what he's getting at, in my opinion, is that he's saying, under the sun, everything is meaningless. Earthly as opposed to divine. Under the sun, as opposed to over the sun kind of living. What, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Verse 14 of this chapter, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is meaningless and grasping for the wind. You just picture that, grasping for the wind. Imagine one of your pastors out in this field. Which way is it? That way. I don't know. Out in this field when it's windy, running around, trying to catch the wind, gra grasping. It's, it's mean. It's absurd. Chapter 2, verse 11. There was no profit under the sun. No labor is properly rewarded, it seems. And this is seen in the elements of nature. So, does the world have a purpose? Do you see, do you notice the cyclical world we live in? Generations come, generations go. The sun comes up, goes down, comes back up, goes down. The wind swirls and twirls. Water, it just keeps going. The, the, for some reason, the sea is not full. Circling around is swirling without purpose. It seems that there's no point. These things never stop. They definitely don't care about me. 
Everything just moves on. Though mighty and incessant, one author says, they seem to accomplish nothing in particular. This world is cold and impersonal. Have you had that feeling in 2020? Have you sat at home thinking, what in the world is going on? There's these terrible things happening all around me, and many of them having a direct effect on my life right now. But yet, the world just moves on, not seemingly accomplishing anything in particular. In fact, the wind blows. Remember that a couple weeks ago? What is happening? And it's true. Under the sun, it's meaningless. If there's nothing over the sun, it's all meaningless if there's no God. Maybe you've fallen into despair, into believing that life is only about what's under the sun. Maybe we've fallen into the temptation to believe that there is no God in the way that we think, in the way that we live today. So what's the point? Why does he say this about the world moves around without a care for me in these first few verses? Well, the point is we're not nearly as important as we thought we were. Do we realize how tiny we are? Do we realize how seemingly insignificant we are in the grand scheme of things? It seems we're not the center of the universe. We're not God. We're not nearly as important as we thought we were. Have you ever had this kind of moment? When you go somewhere thinking you're pretty important, but then realize you're not nearly as important as you thought you were? I was going to officiate a wedding one time. Had been doing premarital counseling for weeks with this couple. The Sunday before the wedding, they're getting married on Saturday, the Sunday before the wedding, the bride says to me, well, my uncle surprised us and got ordained. So he can officiate the wedding. In other words, you're out, he's in. Not as important as I thought I was. Of course, they were so kind about it. And look, it's their wedding. Do whatever you want. <laughs> it frees me up from talking. That's great. But it's a weird feeling, isn't it? Situations like those can be awkward, but they also serve as a great reminder that we're not as important as we think we are. Imagine the young basketball player expecting to take on his senior year as the star. This year is his year to be the MVP. And then LeBron James' little brother moves to town. Okay, maybe next year. Oh, wait, I'm graduating. He's no longer as important as he thought he was. In fact, think about, have you ever thought about sleep before? You know, you do that a lot. Um, one pastor says this, sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not God. Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think we are in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us from this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Once a day. <laughs> How humiliating to the self-made corporate executive that he has to give up all control and become as limp as an infant every day. Sleep is a parable that God is God and that we are mere men. God handles the world quite nicely while a hemisphere sleeps. Sleep is like a broken record that comes around with the same message every day. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Don't let the lesson be lost on you. God wants to be trusted as the great worker who never tires, 
and never sleeps. He is not nearly so impressed with our late nights and our early mornings as he is with peaceful trust that casts all anxieties on him and sleeps. Trust him. Do you trust him? Do you know that God is in control of everything? Lean on him. Rest in him. Trust in him. Wake up in the morning when the sun comes up again. See the sunrise. Feel the wind against your face. Watch water flow down a river and be reminded that God is in control. We are not. So, as Paul would say in Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. What kind of prayer and supplication? Thanksgiving prayers and supplication. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So if you're anxious about anything, pray, pray, and pray. That's what he says. With thanksgiving. And what happens then? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, you're not going to know how it works. The peace of God comes and will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, are you anxious? Or does your heart sink into worry at the mere mention of the presidential election or COVID or work tomorrow or struggles with your family? The message here is to let the cyclical world in which we live be a reminder that God is in control. We're not. So trust Him. Take your anxieties to Him. Philippians 4 says, everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So when you pray in worry, when you pray in, in anxiety, be thankful. One pastor says this, don't just take your prayer journal, take a hymnal. So, pray, 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 because He is in control. And look at the reaction in verse 8 to all these things that are happening. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Doesn't that look like an anxious person? Someone who's full of weariness? We are never satisfied. We will never be filled up, it says. For some reason, we think this world has something to offer for us. Over and over, we try to find satisfaction in the world. My presidential candidate will fix it all. Then I'll be satisfied. Well, what happens in three and a half weeks when your guy loses? Would, would you be satisfied in life because your satisfaction is found elsewhere? Your satisfaction is not found under the sun. Your satisfaction is found over the sun. We will never find satisfaction. We will never find peace in things under the sun. Instead of satisfaction, we find weariness. We find anxiety. So, how are you doing? Is this where you found yourself today? Anxious and worried? Trust the Lord. He's got this. You don't. There's nothing new under the sun, verse 9 says. These kinds of things we're facing are not new. Tragedy and difficulty have been around for a long time. People trying to find pleasure in this or that on this earth is the same kind of thing that people have been trying to find pleasure in for centuries. It's all meaninglessness. Why is everything meaningless? 
Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. Everyone will be forgotten, everyone will die, and no one will remember you. Welcome to church. <laughs> it's true, right? So think, think real quick about uh, your great, great, great grandfather. Remember him? What was his name again? What was his name? What was his name? You, you have 16 of them. Could you just grab one of them? Like, let me know his name. I mean, Gustav Dinstel. It's one of my 16 great, great, great grandfathers. And that's the reason I chose great, great, great grandfather. Because I don't know my great, great grandfather's name. Or the four great-grandfathers' names. Do you remember Abraham Lincoln's friend's cousin? Remember him? Me neither. And really, we read about Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln. Do we really know him? Do we know the ins and outs of his life? They're totally forgotten. Living for things under the sun, his point is, will not bring satisfaction. But someone should try, right? Someone should give it a shot, right? Well, the teacher goes for it. And he goes all out. Here he goes. The deep dive into foolishness. So point number two. Don't live for things under the sun. Don't live for things under the sun. Well, what about wisdom? He starts out. What about wisdom? Look at verse 12. I, the teacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun, under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is meaninglessness, a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly, I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. We are to think of the teacher in terms of Solomon. Solomon's his model here. He seeks, he, it says. He searches, it says. He sees, he says. He applies his heart to know. And what does he find? Here's a few things that he finds. An unhappy business. It's all meaninglessness. It's like striving after the wind and it's like striving after the wind. Do you see what he's trying to do? He's trying to make sense of everything. He's trying to take what is crooked and make it straight. If I could just figure it all out, this crooked thing that's happening all around us, and here's why, oh, I understand. He sees crookedness in the world, and he's trying to straighten it all out. The teacher learns that he cannot straighten it out. Is this your temptation? I just, I just need to make sense of everything so I can understand, so I can be in control of the situation. But he can't straighten it out. Why not? Well, look ahead in chapter 7, verse 13. Chapter 7, verse 13 says this. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Why can't we straighten it all out? Because God is the one who made it crooked. It's difficult. God is in absolute control. He knows he allows difficulty to happen in our lives and he's not distant. He has a specific purpose in allowing calamity, COVID, cancer, or whatever crisis we find. We look at a crooked situation. We want to make it straight. We want to try and straighten it. We say things like, 
This is why he's doing what he's doing. We know what's happening here. We think we know God. We know what God is doing. But do we really? In retrospect, sometimes we get the grace of seeing the hand of God at work, right? And we think, this seems to be what God was doing. This is the way he changed me. This is the way he changed this person or that person. It's a grace from the Lord when we get to see what God is doing in the past. But what if we can't see? What if we don't know exactly why God allows bad things to happen? Why, would you still trust him? Or are you the kind of person that has to know, that has to be in control? Give it up. You're not in control. I heard this illustration recently. You're not in control. You're, in, you're not in the driver's seat. You're in the back seat. That's not the steering wheel you have a hold of. That's the headrest. And it's not connected to the steering. You're just annoying people. You're not in control. We're not in control. God is. Do we trust Him? Do we trust Him? Even the things that we look at and we say, that is so messed up. How is that working for our good and for His glory? How is God for me, we just sang, in that? God knows. Do we trust Him? Verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You can gain great wisdom, but discomfort will come. It forces you to see life's absurdities. It's life's crookedness. Remember when you were a kid and blissfully ignorant? Those were the days, weren't they? In preparation for a study, the teacher tries to gain wisdom and knowledge as if wisdom has all the answers, and it doesn't. God does. Know him. Trust him. We're never going to figure it all out. Well, what about pleasure? What about pleasure? So first, what about about wisdom? Secondly, what about pleasure in chapter 2? I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And behold, all was vanity. He states his quest there to find value in pleasure. And his conclusion, he states already, it's meaninglessness. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with, a, with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do, to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I, I like to laugh. I enjoy things. What's the point of that? He says. Wine will cheer me as I indulge, he says. And then verse 4 through 7, I want you to notice something that's repeated. I'll try to draw it out. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had gone before me in Jerusalem. Stuff, things, finding pleasure in acquiring things. You see the repetition there of myself, I made myself these things. His purpose is self-pleasure, not on others. It doesn't satisfy. You would think that, naturally, we would think that if everything was for me, like if everybody was for me, 
then I would be satisfied. Here's the thing. It's not true. Verse 7. He bought female, male and female slaves. He had people to do everything for him. Verse 8. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. Money. I got great singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. He had money, musicians, and sex. The word there is probably a disgusting, degrading reference to women that he owned. He had all that he wanted. And here, the summary of making himself feel good. Verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all, my, all that my hands had done and the toil I had, I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. No restraint. He held nothing back. Whatever my eyes requested, I got. Wouldn't that be awesome, we think? You could just walk into any dealership and say, I will take all of them. Wrap them up, send them to my house. You could walk anywhere and say, that's mine, that's mine, he's mine, she's mine. It's all vanity chasing after the wind. This should be a wake-up call. Stop pursuing things under the sun as if they can give us pleasure. They can't. So, there you go. Happy Sunday to you. We're not as important as we think we are. And the things that we're pursuing under the sun are meaningless. This world is crooked and messed up and will not satisfy us. But there's good news. We actually have hope. We're not living for things under the sun, are we? God actually rules and reigns. Let me ask you, do you trust Him? Have you turned your life to Him? Have you decided that I am going to follow Christ, trust Him and Him alone? Or are you still looking for satisfaction in the things of this world? Money, People, sexual sin, alcohol abuse, substance abuse, possessions, the next newest thing. Well, how's that working for you? You just want more, don't you? I heard a song, and one line in this song has always stuck with me. We live on a planet of empty wells. After the, the great sports hero wins his championship, what does, the report, what does the reporter almost always ask? Has it sunk in yet? And what is their response every time? Not yet. Because you know what? It won't sink in. You're not going to be ultimately satisfied here with those kinds of things. Under the sun kind of living without God. Maybe you've, you've found yourself thinking that if I just do all these right things in my life, if I just obey and follow these sets of rules, then God will bless me Give me success and give me peace. If I just obey, then God owes me grace. Well, how's that working for you? Are you weighed down by trusting in your own righteous works? Are you tired of working so hard only to find out that we live in a crooked world where it doesn't always work out, quote, like it should? 
Have you found yourself to be like Martha, working hard, but troubled and anxious? Oh man, do I have good news for you. You can be released. You can be set free from that weight. You can find rest. You can find, if you will, peace. It doesn't all depend on you. So trust Him. Turn to Him. Christ has come and He has died for our sins, so we don't have to bear them. And if you put your trust in Him, not only will your sins be forgiven, past, present, and future, but you will also be given the righteousness that is not your own. It's Christ's. You will have a right standing before God. So think for just one second. Are you looking for satisfaction in sin? In Christ, your sins will be forgiven. Are you looking for satisfaction in your own righteousness? In Christ, you will be given a righteousness that isn't yours. Praise the Lord. Turn to Him today. Decide today that Christ is the only one who gives life, who gives satisfaction. He is the God of peace. Come to the Prince of peace and find rest. So, do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you know this song? Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish? that we could see it all made new. We do. You know, the king, the conqueror is coming and he is going to set everything at rest. Are you ready? What an amazing message. What an amazing gospel of peace. What an amazing gospel of hope that we have to proclaim to ourselves and to those around us. Let's pray. Oh God, we are not in control. And the times that we pretend we are, we find ourselves anxious and troubled. So please, Lord, help us to turn to You in times of difficulty, knowing that You are there. You are intimately connected to what is happening here. You have purposes in allowing bad things to happen. They don't take you by surprise. And you're working all these things for our good and for your glory. As we saw this morning in Romans 8. So please, Lord, help us to realize this. And in times of difficulty, may we not wallow in our sorrow, but turn in praise and thanksgiving. Because in Christ alone, my hope is found. You are for us. You are a good Father. You're a King who reigns over all things, but a good Father who loves to give good gifts to His children. So we ask You, please grant good gifts. And when we turn to You in thanksgiving, thank You that You will guard our hearts. The God of peace will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So thank you that we can be forgiven of our sins and be given the righteousness that is from your Son. That we can boldly come before your throne, the throne of grace, and receive mercy and help in time of need. So will you please give us this mercy? Will you please give us this help? We don't know what the future holds. 
We don't know what the next month is going to look like. But may the swirling wind, the sun rising, the sun falling, the rivers rushing downstream, may those be a reminder to us that you are in control and we are not. May we lean on you with our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.